0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter, episode five. Is that what yeah. we're at now? Five. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Episode five on on diabetes. Um, it's nice to have everybody with us. Our um, our listenership is is increasing which is really nice to hear and we encourage all of our listeners if you have questions to send them to us so that we can we can get back to you we are enjoying this especially in the summer months and and we have some really hot topics and one of those topics today is on uh, diabetes. We just got done chatting a little bit. And we said we could probably have a whole series on diabetes alone. We'll have two shows and then probably have more coming down the pike a little bit. Um, I'd like to introduce quickly our, our um, illustrious crew that's responsible for um, health chatter. And that includes um, Maddie Levine-Wolf who's sitting in Chicago right now. Hello, Chicago. And um, Aaron Collins is also in Chicago right now. Um, So welcome to you. Thank you for the the technology so that we can link from Chicago. Um, So Maddie and Aaron are really uh, the behind the scenes that pulled together some some really top-notch research for us. And then we have um, Matthew Campbell Who's our production guru? And I, I keep saying all the time, thank goodness for our production guru, because if you left it to Claire tonight, I don't know if we'd have a show. <laughs> but uh, but it's great. It's great to have all three of you as part of our um, our fun team, our fun health chatter team. Um, and we have a great guest today. I'm going to let Clarence introduce our, our guest. I really want to thank you, first of all, uh, for for joining us. It'll be really good. And you'll be able to hear this illustrious show um, as soon as we get it off the air and onto the system. So, Clarence, go ahead.
1: Well, thank you, Stan. I always enjoy listening to you start a show off. I mean, it sounds like you're having fun. And we've also agreed that if we're not having fun, we're just going to quit doing this, Right. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So, as a community member, I am very honored to present uh, Dr. Stuart Grande, uh, who is the director of the MPH uh, Public Health Administration and Policy uh, at the University of Minnesota. Uh, he's the medical sociologist. He has a strong interest in social and behavioral habits that leads to uh, inequalities, and uh, he's a practitioner of CBPR and he strives to ensure communication for shared decision-making and improving the lives of families so that they engage in the healthcare system and their health. Now, I'm saying all that stuff, you know, we're kind of reading this off, but uh, I've had the opportunity to work with Dr. Stewart as a community member, which which means that I don't have to know all the acronyms that you all guys know. Uh, I can say uh, very uh, assuredly that Dr. Stewart is a... Uh, a phenomenal researcher, a phenomenal practitioner. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with him in a, a variety of community settings where we have talked about this topic of diabetes. And I can assure you that when he talks about these things that people are listening and people are trying to take some, uh, action. And so I'm very happy for health chatter that we have the opportunity to talk about this, these issues and to enter into this conversation in a very transparent, open and honest way. And so, uh, Dr. Stewart, phenomenal person, and uh, I think Stan, I'm gonna let you go next. Uh, we're gonna start probing you, Dr. Stewart. You know how we like to do it. We like to probe people. We like to ask a lot of questions, and you know we like people to be honest and totally transparent and frank. Okay, so Stan, it's your turn.
0: So here's the first poke in the shoulder. Get ready. Now, actually, before we start, I want to. I also want to thank our our sponsor, Human Partnership. Without them, um, this also would not be be going forward. So thank you to them as well so um Stuart, you don't mind me calling you Stuart, i
2: hope um thank you for being not with at us. all please thanks for you being you can with call us. me anything you want just it is, <laughs> as long as it's, it's not the program right, right? Well, yeah okay
0: <laughs> all right so diabetes this is a complicated disease it really is i you know i've been in in the Chronic disease arena for a long time in the cardiovascular arena, which is, in many ways, very complementary to diabetes as as a risk factor. Um, give us your your kind of your gestalt of the idea behind management of diabetes and prevention of it from your perspective.
2: Yeah. I like the softball approach, Stan, thank you very much for doing that. Uh, I, I want to lead off by, uh, reemphasizing to the listeners that I'm a medical sociologist. So I am a researcher by training. Uh, I am, uh, uh a practitioner of community-based participatory research, which Clarence identified at the top. I am not a medical doctor and I am certainly not an endocrinologist. So the, the communication and the information that I provide comes out of a background of doing lots and lots of research in this space, working with communities and working with um, behavior theories to help implement change programs in the community. So I want to be very clear off the, off the top. So any questions that come my way, around um, how the blood circulates through the system, uh, certain cell interactions or biochemical reactions in the system, how the liver responds or any of that stuff, uh, I'd, I'd kindly refer you to some of my, my clinical my clinical friends uh, for those answers. But my gestalt, which basically comes from a perspective of, of chronic illness management, emphasizes that diabetes is uh, the the superstar in the world of, of chronic illness. It is a uh, it is the consequence of a combination of things and Stan you you brought up or made the point that is a complex illness in incredibly complex and inc- complex to the point where there are clinical experts that only focus on diabetes and, more importantly, there are clinical experts that focus on certain types of diabetes. Um, but my gestalt comes from this concept that uh, diabetes is preventable. Now, there are two types. There's type 1 and type 2. Um, I focus most of my attention and effort around type 2, mainly because type 2 diabetes is a consequence of um physical and social determinants of health on individuals and communities and ultimately the way i view it and the way that the the literature views it is that um, uh, type 2 diabetes is preventable and in many cases it's reversible which is pretty incredible when you think about it Um, but overall diabetes to care for type two diabetes in the early stages is cheap. Caring for diabetes later can be very, very costly. Not only for the financial consequences, but the physical, family, emotional consequences is pretty incredible. I hope that that gives it gives you some perspective. On so, where le-
0: so let me, you know. Let's talk about prevention. Yeah. All right. As long as we're, you know, let's dig into that a little bit here.
2: Sure.
0: Um, There are many programs out there that focus on um, the, the programs focus on weight management, nutrition, and exercise. One program, that I'm I'm acutely aware of that the Centers for Disease Control really supports is the diabetes prevention program acronym DPP now I have a, I've asked my colleagues down at CDC why that one I mean what what's what's so magical about that one and of course their answer and and rightfully so it's evidence based this <coughs> is an evidence based Program, okay. Well, this is what I want you to respond to. Evidence base is only as good as the number of participants that take that that do it, that take part in the program, and maintain the program over a period of time in order for it to have an effect. All right. So, why not Weight Watchers, for instance? Okay. I mean, they promote you know good eating and nutrition and and exercise and all the kind of so. Give me a sense from a sociological point of view. What is it? You know, does it really matter? (laughs) Frankly, you know, most people say, okay, what the heck is DPP anyway? Does it really matter? As long as we get them into a a program of some sort. So what's
2: your perspective on that? It's a, this... (laughs) There are as many programs that as there are diets and fads and, and efforts to maintain either the way you look or or healthy eating and healthy healthy lifestyles. Now, so I want to get into the space of, of gestalt again, because this is a really important feature of chronic illness management broadly. There is no magic bullet. Um, the If we were to talk about um the American version of healthcare which is people assume that there is a pill there is a there is a thing that I can take there's a thing that I can do that'll fix me. The hard truth is that this effort to prevent diabetes or to reverse diabetes in some cases is hard brutal work. The honest truth is that it takes in many cases, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears, and a lot of uh, effort. And there are, there are more data coming out all the time, talking about some of the risk factors that contribute to people being more uh, susceptible to diabetes or less susceptible, more likely to benefit from certain exercise and nutrition behaviors than others. The truth of the matter is you can be very healthy and have type two diabetes if it's managed correctly and appropriately. Uh, Is there one program that's going to work best for all people? No, uh, uh, not at all. Um, One thing we know for sure that uh, physical activity, moderate physical activity, exercising, like, for example, this is one of the areas that people get really upset about and concerned about. Because when you talk about physical exercise, you're like, I don't want to go to the gym. I hate going to the gym. I work really hard. I don't have time to go to the gym. So you don't have to. In fact, physical exercise can include cleaning your house, walking up and down stairs, walking an animal, one of the most one of the cheapest and most successful exercise programs out there is owning a dog. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Walking, walking in the neighborhood is probably the most, um, the most cost-effective method of, of, of wellness and lifestyle that you can have. Now, of course this matters if you live in a city or if you live in the, in the country. Um, My, to get to your point, Stan, I think, to the, the idea of what data works best and why are we using these certain programs. Evidence-based medicine, EBM, has been around for probably 25, 30 years. In the last 10 to 15 years, it has gained a lot of traction in the clinical space, and we can talk about this in a little in a little bit. There is a lot of pressure in the science let me let me talk about clinical medicine um as just medicine as because there's there's a difference between how clinical medicine the practice of medicine and the science of 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 biochemistry There, not all doctors are biochemists we need to be very clear about that and the the practice of medicine is very much an art and the science of medicine which is what what we do when we look at what goes on inside the body is a very structured very rigorous space in, in which we work um, then you get into the research, which is what you're asking about when it comes to evidence-based. And there is, a, there is a pyramid, of course, because that's what they want in, in medicine. There is a rigorous hierarchy of data. There is good data and there is bad data. And they have determined the best data is a randomized clinical trial. Now, there is a tremendous amount of challenge and difficulty with, R, they're called RCTs. And RCTs, require certain types of controls. They require certain types of recruitment. They require very, very precise um, strategies that often and to date limit who gets to be put into these trials. And most of the trials that are out there focus on people who look and talk and act like me. And that's not very useful in the community when you have a majority of the, of the need looking very different than me and so if you're trying to apply data that applies to me to a a different population you're going to have poor adherence you're going to have poor approaches and that's at the heart of what you asked is exactly that Um, the data we have that support a lot of the current programming is built on people who look like me so we when you try and extend that data uh, to other populations and I'm saying the science and the statistics when they when they control for certain uh, physical attributes, behavioral attributes or or socioeconomic status, uh, that's helpful, but you still the data is only good as the populations that you're you're recruiting. And right. that's the truth.
1: So Dr. Stan. Yeah, no, Go ahead. Me, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Dr. Stuart, So I, I appreciate that because that was one of the, the questions that I was going to get to is that uh, When I took a look at this information, uh, type 1 diabetes versus type 2 diabetes, you know, uh, impact, it appears that it impacts different populations differently. You know, uh, when we were taking a look at some of the research, you know, type 1 diabetes, you know, uh, uh, affects, you know, whites more, Uh, type 2 diabetes is uh, BIPOC, and you talked about it being Uh, environmental, social, and things like that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think you were starting to get into that when you started talking about the, the, looking at the data, the research, uh, how do we approach this, this piece and how do we get to the point where we can have this conversation where we can make people healthier?
2: Yeah. It's a it's a huge issue, Clarence, and one of the and I really appreciate you bringing up the type one type two uh, difference. And and uh, that's right, the data is pretty extensive on who's at greatest risk. And in fact, one of the one of the populations um, that has some of the highest risk for type one diabetes is in the UK. They have some of the highest prevalence numbers in the world, and so there's a there's a lot of. Uh, well, we all know that a lot of the people who look like me in the U.S. come from Northern Europe, so that's that's pretty consistent that we would have higher rates of type one diabetes in the U.S. Um, among white people. What's what's critical to to include here is that type two diabetes comes from something. It doesn't. Uh, the listeners and people out there need to recognize that this is not this is a non communicable disease. This is very behavioral yes of course there's a genetic component but the genetics are at worst if you have two parents who've got it you have a 25 to 50 percent higher risk that's and that's not even a sure thing that's just a risk factor so when you remove heredity what are you left with you're left with an environment and so, if you are in a space where you have a restricted environment based on safe spaces to be, when you're in a, an environment that has higher, um, higher levels of, uh, so let me ref- let me move away from that for a second. If you have spaces where you grow up where you don't have access to fresh foods and vegetables, or you're in a family, for example, that eats a certain way, or can only afford a certain amount of food or a certain type of food. That gets passed on to the kids. So that's not hereditary. That's basically environment and that's basically family. And when you talk about communities in the US, and I want to be very clear here that race, when I refer to these things, race is not a predictor. It's the communities that happen to have more of one group than another group. That's it. Yes. So statistically, we need to step back and say, are we, how are we referring to these? to people who live in these spaces. Are we talking about the race as a predictor? Are we talking about the space and the place as a predictor? And that's where those conversations need to go. So one of the biggest contributing factors to uh, diabetes, as I mentioned, is this cascade effect. And it starts from this concept of hypertension or um, high blood pressure and high blood pressure and hypertension come from a variety of sources but i'd like to just focus on two mainly one is stress and another is salt or diet intake and uh, diets high in salt content will contribute to higher blood pressure when we think about uh, stress in certain communities i want to refer to something called allostatic load which reflects a lot of social and behavioral and um, environmental stressors that impact the way a person lives works and plays and we see that um, in this metric of allostatic load is a proxy measure for those environmental stressors and social stressors on individuals and we note and the data is very clear that uh, people who live in marginalized communities um, and the people that i uh, speak and work with most are black men and the the allostatic load in that community is higher than in most and that is a um, an inherited a um, an environmental and social stressor that is almost impossible to remove uh, in the U.S. If you live in the U.S. and in certain parts of the U.S., it's even it's even it's even greater. Well, so <laughs> you know, wait, I could keep wait, going, wait, but I, I don't. Yeah, I, okay. I, I, Let me ask you this:
0: you know, um, you know, everybody on this show knows that um, many of the topics that 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 we uh, chat about, um, there's a behavioral component to it. There's a, a behavioral reaction to it. Okay. For, you know, for instance, um, you know, how we eat, you know, is there's a behavioral aspect to it. Um, be adherence to a, uh, a prevention program like DPP or weight watchers or whatever, there's a behavioral aspect to the adherence of it. Okay. There just is, it's just, Oh, I'm getting bored. I don't want to do this anymore, okay? whatever it whatever it is. and that doesn't it doesn't matter if you're black, white, or whatever color you are. it doesn't matter. there is that component. So here's my question. Whoa, these years that I've been involved in this arena, why haven't things changed? Are these embedded factors that you just mentioned so strong that no matter what the hell we do, as far as prevention, as far as information that we give to the public, it's just not going
2: to change. Oh man. Yeah. So uh, I, I have, I'm of multiple minds on this one. Um, why hasn't it changed? My gut reaction is you said that we can, we can come. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you said at the top that we can come from any kind of position, not from one position. Uh, so I'd like to remove my, my, my researcher hat and put on my activist hat, which is uh, generally the white community doesn't pay attention to what's going on in the black or brown community. Uh, it's not a priority for them. Uh, it is not a, it's not it's not an issue that affects their bottom line, doesn't affect their family, doesn't affect their pocketbook. They simply, uh, as a as a collective, don't care, and that is a hard truth to recognize. And and the institutions that are in the United States are often led and currently led, especially our medical institutions, led by um, people who look like me. And as a consequence, as a reflecting on what that means is, where is the investment? Where's the Where's the where is the concern on the broader um, disparities that that ha- we have seen for the last fifty years, but have only really come to our attention? Our, and when I say our attention, I'm I'm talking about the popular media since COVID, which is absolutely right. absurd. Um, so the the lowest hanging fruit answer for me, the gut reaction is that uh, people in control who are white men just don't care. It doesn't affect their bottom line.
0: You know, I, I can't help but but agree. And it's not just this arena, the diabetes arena. I mean, you know, uh, the, our, our our group here has talked, okay, we're going to have to have a show on, um, on reproductive rights too. I mean, I, you know, think about that. But that's a whole other scenario here. But um, is that what you're talking about, though, Stuart, is that what you believe is one of the strongest reasons why we haven't seen major changes um, for the African-American population?
2: <sighs> Um so I have two I have two points of view on this. One is the structures that support health promotion, the large institutions, the large systems that provide resources and support for health promotion and prevention of illness and disease uh, are doing really important work. But at the same time they are doing all the work. And if you look at the spending, if you simply look at what this country puts its money into, where it invests, it invests in biopharmaceutical investments. They, they are trying to innovate. They are trying to make money. They are trying to, and that's where a ton of NIH effort goes. And if you look, and I don't mean, and anybody listening who works for the NIH, please don't or CDC, uh, you know. or CDC. Don't go into my taxes, please. Stay away from all this. <laughs> what I, I, I will I'm going to throw pretty hard at the NIH right now and the CDC because what they are doing is they are they're they're pushing this evidence based medicine approach that they need to do the science for science purposes. So they're investing in new they're investing in new studies, a new way of doing things, innovation. And they're moving agendas forward very quickly based on um, this model of randomized control trials being the most important aspect of data collection and authentic research out there. They are not investing in CBPR to the level they are in biopharmaceutical tests. They are not If we applied the same principles to innovation and behavior change that we do to investing in new forms of technology to use in a hospital we you would see dramatic changes overnight i agree and i so yes it's because of white men in in power positions but it it is also about where the investment's going we don't invest in this country in prevention so and, I, you know, that, me,
0: that's historical, by the way. Right. All, that's been going on for God knows how many years. Go ahead, right. Jared. yeah, yeah.
1: So, uh, first of all, let me let me thank you, Dr. Uh, Stewart, for being candid. Uh, that's what uh, that's what health chatter is about. We want straight conversation. I'm not here to throw stones at anybody. I do have a community perspective, and I will definitely promote that. One of the things I always say is that the color of America is really not black or white. It's really green. It's about the money. I mean, and that's and, and as some of the things that you just said are 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 is that. Uh, but I, I think that it, that it is important that we have these conversations, that we enter into these spaces uh, where we can say these kinds of things without people feeling like you're being attacked. You know. And, I, and I'm I'm grateful for the fact that you have uh, you you stood up and you've uh, you said what you've had to say, and uh, uh, you don't have to sell your soul to, to be a part of this program. Number one, so I so I appreciate that aspect of it. But I, I think it's it, 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 it is important for me uh, on this type of program to speak uh, from a community perspective uh, about this. And I think that while we can look at at what they are doing. I also have to be concerned about what are we doing. So when you when you started talking about about uh, these uh, these environmental factors, I started thinking about why aren't we as community members who are informed about these things? Why aren't we doing uh, more in terms of looking at this? When you talked about the fact that that type two diabetes is is more environmental than it is biomedical, I'm like. I mean, that's some new kind of thinking for me to think about as well. So I just wanna just put that out there is that we we do have those factors or places and spaces where we can point fingers at, but it also puts some of the pointing the fingers back at us as, as community practitioners on learning this new uh, way of thinking about these uh, issues and trying to figure out how we're going to address them. So that's that has no question, it was just a bunch of comments. <laughs>
2: Well, Clarence, I think that's a you, you bring up a really important point, and there's there's a very fine line here, but in in the behavioral change space, and it is you can talk about whether it's a manipulation in terms of how do you get people to do something or not do something versus motivation, and that that balance between manipulation and man, motivation that has that's an intrinsic versus. En- extrinsic motivating factor. Those are factors that that from a behavioral science perspective, you know, we say we can we can do more to enhance and support people to make better decisions. We have behavioral engineers who go out there and think about these things all the time. And and I'd like you to all think about the popcorn you go to the movies and get. Now, if they only offered one small portion size for popcorn, you'd probably only get the one size
0: with no or, refills.
2: Yeah, or like the big gulps, the holy Christmas. These things are gigantic. Of course, if you sell that for a buck 50, people are going to be like, sweet, I get 64 ounces for a buck. That's not somebody making a bad decision. That's somebody being smart, you know, and on the financial. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And so (laughs) who's who's deciding to do that? You know, who's deciding to make that that uh that choice and that's a that's a philosophical question but i i want to get back to this motivation versus manipulation piece because clarence you bring up a really a really troubling point for me which is this idea around obesity for example or weight management that if you're obese it's your fault now in the black community uh there are as there are way more stigmas around weight and uh image and body image especially among women um that are unaddressed in public health spaces especially in public schools um black women are i mean it's it's simply unhealthy to be black and a woman in the united states and it shouldn't be uh you go to other places in the world uh yes black women have a, a difficult time but they don't have nearly as hard of a time than compared to here in the U.S. And so, what is it about the U.S.? What is going on here? And so, it's, is it, we can't walk around and blame individuals. We can certainly say there is responsibility among individuals to make good or better decisions. But to say that, um, <laughs> that it's it is an individual's fault is I think going too far. I, I I would I would extend that to say our schools aren't doing enough. I mean, for example, I don't know how many of you on the call have have had uh home act when you were in school where you learned how to cook and prepare food. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is going out of out of favor. There's less investment in those kinds of classes in public schools. Um, and unfortunately in our lower income communities and marginalized communities this public school systems are where that information gets to the population That's where that gets translated to kids exactly And if kids aren't supported to make those decisions in a public school setting and then they go home and the parents aren't supported to making those decisions, I mean so we're talking about really deep structural challenges within the community but Clance I am I am, and by the way, this message coming out of your mouth versus my mouth is way more impactful. Because if I go into the community and start saying, you guys should be doing more with, oh my God. Right, right. That is not the appropriate appropriate way to do this work. You know, I'll tell you, I've been in the,
0: you know, my career was, was really for, almost from day one focused on um, on primary prevention. Getting it, whatever it may be, before it hits you. Okay. Um, you know, putting on a seatbelt or or God knows what. All these different, all these different things. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, right? And we can we can <clears throat> put a whole litany of ideas together of what, what we've been telling everybody, don't do. So the motivational factor behind it though is not a constant. Okay, human behavior and motivation goes up and down and sideways depending upon a variety of different things that affect individuals. And diabetes certainly is a perfect example of that. So let me, let me, let me. We can go on and on, but we've got other. Let me just focus on you know just a couple of top points here, and then we can all chime in here. Um, Gadgets, okay. I'll, I'll just I'll just list all of these things. Gadgets insulin costs which to me to be honest with you i don't know i you know 20 years ago we we weren't talking about insulin costs or maybe i'm incorrect there but we certainly not that i'm aware of um the statistics where are we seeing more and more uh, diabetes uh cropping up i can tell you that i'm aware of the fact that it's very complementary to um, what we've called in the cardiovascular you know, the stroke belt of the United States, which is basically the Southeastern quadrant that runs almost from like DC all the way down and around through down to Texas. What's going on? Okay, so let's talk about gadgets. Let's talk about um, insulin. Let's talk about statistics a little bit. And everybody can chime in here. Okay, go ahead. Stuart, you're our illustrious guest, you go first.
2: <laughs> well, I, I want to dive into the um, the gadget arena. So, part of my work, part of my research, is in this area of m health or mobile health and the use of smartphone. Now, there are I've published several pieces on this, and uh, I am of the very strong opinion that this is an avenue for making sure that people who need information can get it quickly and appropriately and in a trustworthy way. And I think we also have a lot of work to do with building trust in these communities. To, un- to, to um, Messaging is really critical and where the message comes from is also critical. And so designing tools, designing mHealth tools, to be able to translate knowledge from the bench to bedside as they say to basically provide appropriate and sufficient and useful information for individuals struggling with managing diabetes or suspected of having hypertension is very needed and um there's a lot of hope out there but like i said before the money that's being spent currently is being spent on trials for interventions that are around drugs and Mm. there needs to be a lot more rigor uh around the use of these tools to change behavior and monitor behavior over time. There is evidence of it, but there just needs to be a lot more of it going forward. Clarence, what do you think? Do you think
0: um, in the African-American population, they, um, you know, we call it gadgets, but do you think that they embrace apps? Do you think that they embrace um, you know, uh, f- f- uh, information that's on their wrist. Um, do you think that they embrace um, blood pressure cuffs that are Bluetooth enabled and that they can afford to get? What do you think? What What I, do you know?
1: I, I don't know if I would use the term embrace. Okay, uh, all right, go ahead. Okay. Tell me a better <laughs> word. <laughs> okay, well, no, I, I, I'm thinking about that. I think one of the there's a a growing recognition. Of the importance of these things knowing that you know we have uh, younger people who are more informed about issues and so they're 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 more uh, vegetarians and vegans and all those kinds of things you know versus us carnivores you know uh, so I, I think that there is a, a growing need for uh, for these for these types of apps and it's a uh, yeah, I think that, that, that would be that would be how I would define it. I know that there are more and more people that are involved or, or having using apps to monitor their health. So uh, the more that we can uh, the more the, the more people are aware of their health, I think the more these apps will become more valuable to them. So that's that's how I that's how I look at it.
0: And you know, in order to use them, I mean it's just like, you know, we see diabetes, you know, certainly cropping up in an elderly population. Mm-hmm. How How do these elderly people embrace this new technology? Um, Are they willing to do it even? Are they scared of it? Are they intimidated by it? Um, I, I think part of the answer to that is yes, but... Maybe not. Maybe that's just the way kind of the world is going, and they'll they'll get it eventually, type of thing. You know, it's but like moving from a dial phone to a touch button phone to a, you know that type of thing.
1: But I think I think part of it, part of the part of the uh, uh, solution was what was mentioned a little bit earlier, which is that the young people in the in the schools should be made more aware of this because a lot of times young people are are the influences in their families. Yeah, I, I mean, grand, you know, grandma might say, "Hey, I got this cuff." Uh, but if that kid doesn't understand it you know uh it, it just sits there but if he has an he or she has an idea about what it is then they're more yeah. apt to say hey grandma let me let me show you how to do this then grandma that's, thinks
0: that's a great point
1: then grandma thinks she's cool because yeah. she's hip you know what'm i saying <laughs> i mean so sometimes you got to use that behavioral kind of thing in order to uh uh to make things more more uh acceptable but hey i, I, I wonder about the students though i mean what are you guys thinking i mean i your hands up. Come on, let's talk.
2: I would love to jump in here. I actually have something to add in on this. Um, it's not only about just learning how to use the app on your phone, it's about learning how to live with diabetes. And I don't know if we've touched on this yet, but learning what a high blood sugar is, learning what a low blood sugar is. When do I give insulin? When do I eat something? When do I go to the emergency room? How often should I be seeing my doctor? And all of that should be a part of education on using the app and learning how to live with diabetes which is another I, huge disparity. absolutely
0: it's one thing the measurement it's another thing the the lifestyle changes that that people have to embrace you know let's talk about insulin for God's sakes what the hell is going on here all right so it's like you know really I mean it's it's just like you know costs have skyrocketed i don't know why i can maybe guess why but implications the whole nine yards let's let's get this conversation going stuart you you have some ideas on all this
2: do i ever have ideas <laughs> on all of this yeah uh the the right the, there's so it's been reported in a mayo finding that uh there are i i, I think there are three main drivers of this and they're, they're really based on false assumptions. One is this this need to develop new, new technologies. And the reality is insulin's been around since the 20s, and they've been able to uh, manufacture this insulin in a way that has made it affordable in Canada and the UK for a very long time. The prices there have not changed at all, and people are fine. People can access it and have access to it um there's also this this misperception that innovation in this space is really necessary and these companies need need to charge more because they need to they need to be able to support this 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 machine of developing innovative new solutions for this and as i've mentioned before the basic drug um there are uh there are multiple. This is not my area of expertise, but there are multiple drugs that are analog to the human insulin, and then there are are, are, are others out there. Um, there's also non-insulin based um, treatments for people with type two diabetes, and these are all these are all based on 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 research that has been a lo- around for a long time. One of the more the the more exciting developments is the subcutaneous insulin pump, which there's a right now there's a, uh, 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 an NHL player. His name is, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember. Why can't I remember his first name? Well, his last name's Domi and he, uh, he has type one diabetes and he plays with an insulin pump. Uh, and he, he does just fine. He is one of the best players in the league and he does just fine. But this, this subcutaneous pump takes care of what Aaron call, uh, brought up. It's, it, it measures time. It can sense a lot of things going on in the system and it's allowed and it's capable of doing a lot of these things. The problem is it, it, it comes at a cost and, and Medicare will cover it. Medicaid, however, based on States allowing certain things becomes a little bit more challenging. And if you live in that, that belt, uh, Stan, that you suggested the stroke belt, as it were, it is very difficult to, uh, to get some funding for some of these things, and so uh, yeah, it, it, it's a it's a serious challenge. You know, um, it's a serious,
0: and I would add to that, it's a sad challenge. You know, because there's a lot of people in in the world that are, are that are affected by diabetes and need this. Okay, and so in my estimation, it's a crime that it has to be at such at such costs that it becomes uh, um, difficult for people where they, they they cut dosages in half in order to give you know to get the necessary that they need et cetera et cetera so it's it's really really sad and this is the show that we probably could do for sure another show altogether let me just talk about statistics I you know I could probably summarize statistics in a couple of sentences. One is certain population groups are off the charts, and they continue to be off the charts. Okay, the number of diabetics in the, in the country and the world is increasing, and we've got certain um, sociological components that that lead to that. Medical components lead to that, leading to that, etc. Um, there are certain geographic variations. In, in where we're seeing um, a higher incidence of, of diabetes. Let me say this, that overall, um, this is a mountain that we still need to climb. We still, it, it, in all fairness to to whoever is is dealing with it, whether it's from an individual or a population base, this is a, a, a mountain that we need to continue to climb and help, and help people with. Um,
1: Clarence. Yeah, I just wanna say this. I I thank you, Dr. Stewart. And I think it's been said, uh, I mean, this particular topic we could do 12 shows on. I think that you brought up some really great points that we need to dive further into. And so I just wanna say that uh, uh, we will continue to have these health chatters to talk about these issues as they emerge. And uh, I, I personally, You know, want to just thank you for for causing me to think. I mean, you you probe, you said some things that kind of pricked me. Just so you know that. Uh, And so uh, we'll talk about this later offline, okay? But anyway, I just uh, I just want to thank you. So I'm finished, but I just want to say thank you. That's my thought for today.
0: Yeah, thanks, Stuart. You're you're great. You brought up some intriguing points. That, that need further further discussion, um, I hope that we can invite you on our show um, again um, to, to deep dive into some of these. Um, for our listeners, we're going to have another show on diabetes tomorrow. Uh, we're going to be taping it and uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, we'll, we'll have somebody talking about type 1 and, and type To diabetes, which really gets into what Aaron, you were talking about is uh, how it affects a person's lifestyle. It's just like, all of a sudden, what happens if if somebody tells you, your physician tells you, guess what? You're diabetic. Whoa. Then what? It's kind of like it knocks you in the head and you say, God, okay, what website do I have to go to first? okay, those types of things. So stay tuned for that to all our listeners. I want to thank everybody for their their incredible insights into today's Health Chatter Show, and we look forward to all of you participating, whether it be sending us questions or listening to our shows going forward. Stuart, thank you once again. We really greatly appreciate it.
2: You're very Bye-bye, welcome. Bye-bye, everybody. Mike.